Einstein is fat and happy, <laughs> but totally screwed academically. Welcome to What the If, Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker here with esteemed artist, science historian, biographer, professor, Matthew Stanley of New York University, who has a brand new announcement, exciting announcement to make. The announcement Announce. is that my new, my new book, Einstein's War will be appearing on shelves on May 21st. Spontaneously appearing on shelves. Oof, yes, a, a, <laughs> a quantum fluctuation will result in its appearance on a bookshelf near you, or you can order from Amazon. Right, but exactly how near you and exactly when, we can't say. That's right. That's probabilistic. But nearby. Einstein's War. Now, in, in some past episodes, I've been adding a deep echo, echo, echo. To Einstein's War. Is that good? Do you think that'll sell more? Oh, sure. Well, well, the subtitle is um, How Relativity Triumphed Over the Vicious Nationalism of World War I. Ooh. So I think that could do with an echo, yeah. That's good. Vicious nationalism. Vicious, I tell you. Vicious. No relation to the Vichy. That would be uh, World, that is correct. <laughs> World War II. Also no relation to Sid Vicious, the uh, punk musician. <laughs> <laughs> Touché. This, so this is very exciting. So your book now, how long have you been working on this? How long has this book been in the works? Oh, well, I guess in some sense, for a couple of decades, in that I've been doing research on the various aspects of the story, but I've been hard at work writing it for the last year or so. Fantastic. And are there any breakthroughs Anything surprising? Uh, yes, but you'll have to read the book for it. Yeah. Right. That's okay. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but there are surprising, surprising on the science side, history side, both. Yeah, actually, I think there's there's probably good surprises on um, uh, lots of sides. I think one of my favorite parts is where Einstein makes a huge mistake, and it takes him a couple of years to realize it. Um, uh, because we don't like to think about, you know, Einstein, greatest mind of all time, realizing he has to go back and cross out. Uh, a couple of pages, which turns out to be, you know, years of work, um, and realizing he had he had totally misconceived something right from the start. Right, and and we know how this turned out. Right, but at the time, that's right. You have no idea. Um, and then I should say, when he tells the story, he changes it up. Right, he changes the story to make it seem different than it actually was. Oh, wow. Wow. So you can compare, you're, you're able to compare Einstein's telling mm -hmm. with reality. That's right. Cause we've got his notebooks and letters and things. So, so Einstein peddled in alternative facts. Well, I suppose. Um, I mean, everybody tells stories to make themselves look good, right? Or to convey a particular impression. So nobody wants to tell a story about how they screwed things up for a couple of years, right? They, they tell a story about how they gloriously came to this crisp conclusion that no one could doubt. 
Except comedians, perhaps. Comedians may actually exactly. exaggerate in the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you, you come with a fantastic concept. What the if? World War I had not happened. Wow. What if World War I had not happened? And in particular, how that if would affect uh, relativity. Well, sort of, yeah, relativity and Einstein and sort of the way we think about science, actually. So, you know, it, it may not be obvious the, the connection of World War One to relativity or science. Um, but really, the, the way we think about Einstein uh, is deeply connected to the world events going on around him when he was working on his theory and when he became famous. Right. Right. So, and, and people should know that this is how Einstein became famous. This, right. the, this story that your book tells, before it, very few people know who he is, except, let's say, in physics, which was not... Theoretical a, physicists. Theoretical yeah. physicists. Not a gigantic field at that time at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, afterwards... Boom, almost instantaneously, or as fast as the mass media of the time, newspapers. That's right, as fast as the telegraph goes, yeah. Yeah, everybody Uh knew who Einstein was, and he comes to stand for what he does today, the the scientist. Exactly right. I mean, his his name is a noun. You can say, wow, that person's a real Einstein. Um, And everyone knows, right? You can can go anywhere in the world and people recognize Einstein's face. Um, And one of the things I find crazy is that, as you say, it's almost overnight. So uh, on November 7th, 1919, this is true. Everyone knows who Einstein is. On November 5th, 1919, nobody knows who Einstein is. Wow. Um, It's a crazy kind of thing to think about, especially with sort of early 20th century media technology. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and it's so embedded in our culture that just the other day I was uh, in an airport uh, flying from Seattle back to New York, and I was having a fine lunch. And the waitress came over, and I had not realized that there's this uh, discount card I get for restaurants or something, like a coupon thing. And uh, when I had applied for this card... In, in addition to just putting having a little pop-up menu that said Mist, you could choose Mr., Mrs., or Doctor, mm-hmm. it, it was one of those ones that had like 30 options. Oh, yeah. And so I chose um, Professor. I, I, and I, I do teach film, part-time, occasionally. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I don't know. I figured I just did that. Yeah, uh, go for it. That's a joke. I forgot about it. I had no idea that when I went to use the app for the first time, for instance, in this restaurant, it pops up with your name and that, what, what do they call that, a uh, uh, honorific? Yeah, honorific, yeah. yeah. So it says, Professor Philip Shane. And I was like, oh, okay, well, whatever. So you put, you have to show that to the waitress. She comes over and she sees that and she doesn't say anything. When she comes back and brings my food, she says, here you go, professor. Ah. <laughs> and she says, what do you teach? And then before I could answer, she pointed her finger and she said, <laughs> Uh, physics, right? Whoa. <laughs> and it didn't hit me then, I explained, no documentary and so forth. But later I realized it was probably physics because I have, I do have Einstein's hair. Yeah. And that's sufficient. Yeah. Dark, in the dark form, mm-hmm. black still, 
thank you. But uh, yeah. Well, and I should say, actually, one of the interesting things about this story. So, so I should say the, the important part of the story is 1914 to 1919, um, and Einstein's um, in his mid 30s. At this point, right? Wow. His hair is his hair is not gray. It's fairly close cropped. You know, it's not neat, but it's not the giant shock of hair we're used to thinking about. So it's this sort of early middle age Einstein that we're not used to thinking about, right? We're used to either the wizened sage or the young heroic uh, iconoclast. Um, but this is, you know, guy in his thirties. He's got a good job. He's got a couple kids, trying to kind of figure things out. Not what we're used to thinking about for Einstein. Yeah, amazing. And he has a government job, basically. Oh, well, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so by this point, so actually right before the war starts in 1914, he comes to Berlin to take a new professorship at the University of Berlin. And his, uh, his friend, Max Planck, who essentially kind of runs German science at the time, had set this this up for him. So Einstein had, pre- previous to this, Einstein had a couple of university jobs. Um, and then before that, he was working as a patent clerk right out, of, right out of school. His first job was as a patent clerk. And that's when he writes um, these uh, series of papers in 1905 that do a whole bunch of different things. So they, they help establish atomic theory and they help establish quantum physics and they help establish what nowadays we call special relativity. And most people who read these um, are excited about the atomic theory and quantum physics stuff. Relativity is this weird side project that no one's much interested in, um, except for this guy, Max Planck, who thinks there might be something cool in it. So he becomes sort of Einstein's mentor and Sherpa, right? He's the guy who actually gets Einstein up the mountain because nobody else really understands what relativity is about. Right. And, and actually, if I frankly, just, I can yeah, interject that the, the three, it's three other things, right? So there were four total in the miracle year. That's right. Four papers. Yeah. Right. So very, very so, simply put, one is the photoelectric effect. Yep, that's right. And that gives rise to quantum mechanics. Right. And that's a little hard for people to grasp, but it basically says, a particle is a wave. Uh, light is a particle and a wave, depending on how you measure it. But yep. the second, the other two are, are much easier to grasp, mm-hmm. I think, right? One is that there are atoms. Right. It's kind of hard to remember now, but in 1905, it was still reasonable to be skeptical about atoms because you can't see them. Right. right. So Einstein, the big contribution that gets everybody excited about Einstein is he comes up with a, a convincing argument four observations you can make in the lab that should convince you atoms exist. Right. And now here's something everyone understands, you know, these days, everyone, atoms is something that's easy to grasp. And you'd think Einstein would be famous for that. And maybe he would have been mm-hmm. yep. over that's slower. Right. And that's something we can think about. Yeah. Right. The ne- and then the third one was E equals MC squared. Uh, well, that's technically part of special relativity, ah. so it's, uh, it's a, a cousin thereof. Um, the, the last thing that Einstein does is he solves this problem in what's called specific heats, which is this particular calculation in thermodynamics that you totally don't need to worry about, um, except to know that it had been bothering people for decades. They, nobody could do this calculation, and then he man figures out a way to do it, and they're like, oh, finally. Yeah, so in one year, and in fact in less than a year, I guess, he publishes the, he, these major contributions to science. Right. Um, and Planck is the editor of the Annalen, Der Physik, which is where they're published. Uh, this, is the, this is the days before peer review. So if the editor likes you, you're in. 
Um, And that is that is essentially what happened. So then Planck looks for opportunities to kind of get Einstein to an academic job where Einstein can just kind of settle in and do some important work. Um, And so most people know Einstein. I should say they're the only people who know Einstein at the time are theoretical physicists um, who are interested in problems like heat and the photoelectric effect. Right. So that's like, I don't know, half a dozen people on the eastern seaboard. In the world. Oh, no, no, I was thinking oh. of the United States, right? right. Um, so, uh, so people who do know him know him for that. But no one outside the community of theoretical physics would have ever have heard of this guy. It's incredible. It's incredible. And uh, just describe Max Planck to us. Oh, Planck is sort of the... Uh, the, the perfect German scientist of the day. Um, he is uh, well-groomed and politically conservative and bureaucratically skilled. Uh, he's the one that makes everything happen in German physics. Okay. Um, so he's, he's the old man of the, of the community. Huh? So what Planck says goes. A little bit like the Einstein. What, what we well, do? kind of what Einstein would come to be. Um, But I think one one of Planck's important features is sort of his rectitude, like he was the most upright of people, right? He he followed all the rules and did everything that he was supposed to. Um, And this becomes, uh, I should say, tragic later um, when the Nazis come to power and he has a very difficult time deciding what to do because he is, you know, deep in the fiber of his being uh, is to respect the authority of the state. And that was easier for him with the king than it was for the Nazis. Um, and it's uh, so the, the end of his story is quite sad. Right. And, and so this is another important thing to, to note, that Germany has a king at this time. That's right. The Kaiser. The Kaiser. And it's interesting because uh, for a long time, I thought, I just thought of the Kaiser. I didn't know what that was exactly. I, I thought, that, I don't know, obviously it was the name of the leader, but the Kaiser, but when it's described as king, it's like, oh, okay, I get it. Wow, I didn't know Germany had a king. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so Kaiser is the same root as uh, Tsar, for instance, and which all, of course, go back to Caesar eventually. So it's all of these these various European attempts to to seize the authority of the Romans still still lingering on. Um, And And Napoleon is emperor. I guess that also uh, he is emperor. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I'd have to look up what it was, but he's long gone, right? Okay. Um, so, and one of the interesting things to think about: so Europe is sort of half um, republics and half monarchies at this time. So this is before the Russian Revolution. So the Tsar is still in charge. Um, Germany has a king, but it also has a parliament. But it's a very strong king. Hmm. Uh, the United Kingdom. Um, has a king, but also a very strong parliament. France is, France is a republic. So it's like I said, it's kind of a mix. Um, but one of the interesting features, I think, of the, the countries that still have monarchs is they're all cousins. Literally cousins. They are literally cousins, right? Um, so uh, Tsar Nicholas and uh, Kaiser Wilhelm and George V are all grandchildren of Queen Victoria. Whoa. That's crazy. Isn't that weird? So somehow they wound up going to these other countries. Yeah, that's right. It was pretty, in the old days, it was pretty common to pass around children of royal blood because even if they weren't. They would go marry someone like a a princess. Exactly. From that country. And therefore they had an alliance now with England. Right. Yeah. It's Game of Thrones. It's total Game of Thrones. Right. Yeah. Right. But with telegraphs and rams, trains. Yeah. Ooh. Wow. That sequel is going to be amazing. Okay. So. (laughs) 
because the, because the white walkers are also going to have telegraphs. Uh, well, I'll sort if yeah. they need them. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so world war one in our world happens. So right. instead of world war one, take us through now chronologically how things might play out. Uh, so um, by 1914, uh, Europe had been in sort of a state of political tension for a couple of decades. There's an arms race going on among all of the major powers. There's sort of these minor colonial wars. Um, but everybody knows that they're armed to the teeth. So that kind of keeps things from getting too bad in, in a couple of a couple of bad circumstances don't get worse because people are like, all right, we don't want to have a, a full-on war. Um, but everybody knows they're very close to it as well. So it's kind of like the the Cold War years as far as that goes. Um, and then it's just through weird, bizarre chance that everything goes wrong at just the right time. So some Serbian nationalists are upset about the Austrians occupying this place in the Balkans. Um, so this particular group of terrorists shoots the uh, Austrian Archduke, who's the, the heir. Um, and then, so I'll, I'll do this quick and people can play it back at slow speed if they want to, to figure out the chain of events. Actually, so, actually I think we could just stop right there. So yeah. let's, okay, um, cause you can definitely Google what did happen. And, um, but everybody knows, okay, there was a, it was the great war. It was the first world war and it began oddly enough. The catalyst was the shooting of this. What was he was, uh, uh the Austrian archduke archduke. So let's say he lives. Okay, yep, that'd be fine. He lived. Um, Congratulations to him, first of all, the first to benefit from this new <laughs> future, <laughs> new past. Franz Ferdinand himself. So, uh, Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie, yeah. it was their anniversary, actually, on oh the day gosh. that they were shot. So, they instead have a very nice anniversary. Wonderful. Um, it's not hard to imagine the terrorists screwing up the assassination attempt. Um, so, uh, Austria doesn't have to declare war on Serbia. So Russia doesn't have to declare war on Austria, which means um, Germany doesn't have to declare war on Russia, which means France doesn't have to declare war on Russia, which means Germany doesn't have to declare war on Belgium, which means the United Kingdom hasn't doesn't have to declare war on Germany. So everything's fine, right? So uh, another international crisis is weathered, right? They, they had done it before. Um, now, from Einstein's point of view in Berlin, uh, he's really excited about something in August of 1914, but it's not the impending war. So what he's excited about is finally there's an opportunity to test his theory of relativity. Okay, so the first version of relativity comes up in 1905, right? It's one of those papers in his miracle year that we were talking about. Um, and relativity is weird at the time because there's no easy way to test it. You can't do it. You, you can't see things like time dilation in the laboratory at the time. Um, so, and that's one of the reasons relativity kind of sits by the side. There's no one knows how to test it or what to do with it. So Einstein spends some time in the intervening years trying to figure out if there's a way to make relativity more general so it could then be tested. So can we say that of special relativity, one of the most important things is that that deals with what happens when you or any object goes close to this get goes close to the speed of light. That's right. Yeah. And it turns out that space and time and mass all get distorted. So you can easily imagine how at the time they're like, maybe uh Yeah. We can't get close to the speed of light. So like we we can't do anything about this. And what's incredible is so that's nineteen oh five and here we are nineteen fourteen. That means for nine years. Yeah. He's had this thing that's sort of he doesn't know he had, no one's been able to test it. 
That's right. Um, and partially that's because um, people like Planck are directing him to work on the areas they're more interested in, which is things like quantum physics and atomic theory. Um, so he's got a, a good reason not to be working on relativity. So, you know, you, you go where the interest is, right? That's where your publications are going to be. Um, so it takes a little while uh, until he has time to work on relativity. It's literally um, and- a notebook sitting on his desk in a drawer or a file cabinet, right? <laughs> I mean, that's literally yep, what that's, that's right. relativity um, was at the time. Did he? But he thought he was finished. Well, no, he was. It's quite clear that, that special relativity needed to be extended. Um, that is, that there was something that, that was not sufficient. It was. Uh, that's what the special means. Is it only applies to certain circumstances? So, uh, 1907, he has kind of a a flash of insight about making relativity more general, but he's not sure what to do with it exactly. Um, And then, as is often the case, uh, it isn't until other people start working on relativity that he's suddenly like, oh, well, I better get working on this before other people steal my baby. Um, uh, So it's actually one of his old math teachers in college, a guy named Hermann Minkowski, who uh, who hated Einstein, I should say, when Einstein was his student, um, because Einstein would never show up to class and just read his friend Marcel's notes and show up for the exam and do fine on the exam. So Minkowski famously called him a lazy dog. Um, uh, so when That's Minkowski- an insult to both Einstein and... Lazy dogs, dogs, because (laughs) that's a good thing for a dog. I don't know. Yeah, that's probably true, actually. (laughs) Um, So Minkowski, uh, when he sees these papers in 1905, he's like, ah, I I would never have guessed that lazy dog could have done this. So he starts working on relativity a little bit, um, and he comes up with a new kind of formulation, like a new way to write down the equations that turns out to be a lot more powerful. Um, and Einstein at first um, says, that's, that's, that's awful. He's, he, he says, um, I no longer recogni- recognized my theory once the mathematicians had gotten hold of it. <laughs> but, then, but then fairly quickly realizes that um, he could actually do more with, with Minkowski's formulation than his original one. Um, so, that's, so he starts working on a little bit more, say, um, uh, 1910, 1911. And this is around when he gets a, a job as a professor back in Zurich, where he had actually been a student. Um, now, one of the problems with Minkowski's formulation is the mathematics is very difficult. And as you may recall, Einstein skipped his math classes. <laughs> so he realizes he, he doesn't know the math he needs to do. Um, fortunately, his friend Marcel from college is still living in Zurich. So he goes over there to ask for help with the math again. That's awesome. <laughs> Poor Marcel. You know, the guys, you know, I've, I've done that. I've had people sitting there. I confess, and Mr. Eilers, my earth science teacher, I think he knew this at some point, but I sat next to the quarterback of the football team in high school, Brian Albertini. And if you're out there, Brian, I hope you're doing well. Uh, and Brian said, uh, you know, he didn't have a New York accent because we were in Maryland, but basically said, uh, you know, if you should happen to have, have your uh, test visible <laughs> to the person who sat next to you, that might be how that might help. You know, that might be okay. So, yeah. Um, so, so, so Marcel and Einstein sit down um, through 1911 and 1912, um, and and work on what become what is going to become the theory of general relativity. So, this is relativity, but it applies to everything. That it's how space and time warp, and particularly how they interact with gravity. And it's a higher rank. It's general. Right. That's exactly right. Special. <laughs> that's, special that's was it accident. was like a private. Yeah, private relativity is no good at all. Yeah. 
So one of the things that comes, uh, this is what Einstein calls his draft version of the theory, um, which seems to work pretty well. Uh, and one of the important things it does is it makes a prediction that can be tested. Okay, which we didn't have before for Einstein, for relativity. Um, and the prediction is this, that uh, gravity should affect light. So in the same way that when you throw a ball, gravity changes the trajectory of the ball to make it arc downward, light should arc downward as well. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, He's the a problem is man. that <laughs> the problem is that light goes really fast, right? So you need a really intense gravitational field to notice it. So you can't just notice it by flashing a uh, shining a flashlight across the surface of the Earth. You need something really big. And the biggest thing we've got near to us is the sun. What Einstein uh, realizes is if you looked at the image of a star as it was just on the edge of the sun, then the ray of light coming from that star would get bent ever so slightly by the sun's gravity. And from our point of view on Earth, it would look like the star was in the wrong place. The star moved out of place. That's right. The star is a little bent. The image of the star is distorted and bent by the sun's gravity. Um, and that's a thing you can, you can check for. The problem, of course, is that how often do you see stars in the daytime next to the sun? And I think if I take one step back, it's that yeah. he needs to show this because forget the light beam and the sun and whatnot. The, the weirdest thing here he's saying is that space can be bent. That's right. <laughs> it can be warped. He is saying, ultimately, that's why we have gravity. The gravity yeah. is caused by this bending of space around the Earth for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is why he needs to show just that space can be bent. The, mm -hmm. Just that this concept, because otherwise everyone else pretty much feels like we never thought of space being. Yeah, and it's it's an it's an outrageous, bizarre idea. So when you have outrageous, bizarre ideas, you need to come up with good reasons for people to believe you. Right, space which is empty That's can right. be bent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, it can still bend things. Right. Yeah. Um. So the so this is testable, right? You can. So he makes a a, a quantitative prediction. He says a star should appear this far different in the sky because of the curvature of space-time, in my theory. Uh, the problem is that it's hard to see stars in the daytime because <laughs> the sun is bright, right? right? So you have to wait until you can see stars in the daytime, and there's really only one time that happens, and that's during a total solar eclipse. Right? Right. So even a partial solar eclipse, you can't see stars at. You have to wait until one of these rare events where the disk of the sun is totally obscured perfectly. Yeah. And then you take a photograph of that part of the sky uh, and you measure it very carefully to see how the star was distorted by the sun's gravity. And I must say, having been now to a solar, a total solar eclipse, which I never had been before, yeah. I didn't. I, I don't know, it all happened very fast, so I don't remember seeing stars, but it no. feels like that'd be, that there aren't like a ton of stars. No, that's right. It's just a handful, and they're very close to it. And I should say, you don't always see them. So if it's, right. if it's a partially cloudy day or something, you just won't see them at all. Um, so kind of everything has to line up just right. Really hard to do. Right. But it's at least possible. Which is, which is all Einstein needed, because right? he, he had to convince people that his crazy ideas were right. 
so by 1912, he has this prediction. And through a friend of a friend, he actually gets um, somebody in South America to look for this in 1912. Um, but the eclipse is rained out, so they can't do the test. Mm. Okay, all right. Um, so fortunately for him, there's another one coming up in August of 1914. So his friend, Erwin uh, Freundlich, uh, agrees to go do the observation in the field. Because Einstein's not an astronomer. He doesn't know how to use a telescope. That's not, that's not his bag. Right? So, uh, but um, eclipse expeditions are expensive because you have to essentially build an observatory in the middle of nowhere, wherever the eclipse is going to happen to be, and set up all your equipment. No portable telescopes at this time. Portable only in the very general sense that, like, you can fit them on a train, right? Right, right. Um, so, but Freundlich gets together a crew, agrees to do this. Uh, Planck gets them the money. Remember, Planck is Einstein's sugar daddy here that makes everything happen. And actually, it's kind of interesting. Half of the money they get is from the Krupp Corporation, who makes the heavy... Nowadays, we know them as what? Coffee makers, Coffee, right? yeah. At the time, they made their money from selling heavy guns to the German army. So actually, the very guns that are shooting at the, at the French paid for this expedition to go test Einstein's idea. Whoa. How crazy is that? Right? <laughs> so, we're, so World War I doesn't happen. There's well, so no this money? is an interesting, this is an important point. So um, where, they're, where Freundlich is going to observe the eclipse is the Crimea, which is in Russia. So, August 1914, he is setting up a bunch of telescopes in the middle of Russian territory, and suddenly the war starts. So, he is arrested as a spy, because obviously, why else would he be setting up these telescopes in the middle of Russian territory? Right. Now, is, is it on the border of Russia? No, it's, it's, it's well it's in. way in. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's near Odessa. Right. Um, uh, so, it's a, near a major naval base. Ah. So people are very suspicious. So, um, so the guy who's about to go test Einstein's theory gets arrested as a spy. <laughs> because, because the war has started. Or because the war just starts, that's right. It was like the war starts a couple days before the eclipse is supposed to happen. So a couple, even forget, forget whether World War I happens or not. This is a couple of days here or there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, if the Germans had been a little slower on mobilization or something, wouldn't have been a big deal. So Einstein is, is, is waiting for news through August, but he's not waiting for news about the war. He's waiting for news about the eclipse. And then he's like, ah, damn it. The first thing that Einstein, Einstein's experience of the war is, uh, his long-awaited test is destroyed. So how does he, does he get a telegram or something? How does he find out? Um, that is a good question. I don't know if we have that document. Freundlich became an official prisoner of war of the Russians. So, however, the sides informed each other about prisoners of war at the time. I'd have to check on that. And he would have even had to know to go wherever it is you would get. I mean, we're talking really pretty primitive communications of the time. Like, he, 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 it sounds like he didn't, as far as we know, he didn't get a telegram that just said H E L P. In German, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Einstein's first experience of the war, like I said, to totally messes with the work he's been doing for nine years by this point. Right? He finally had the chance to have somebody, and it's like, oh man, yeah. Um, so then he says, "All right, well, you know, can I? I'll have to wait for sort of the next eclipse." 
or get somebody else to do it because there's actually a total eclipse somewhere on the planet every couple of years. The problem is getting there. Um, and he can't get there because the war has started. So Germany is under blockade by the Royal Navy and then by trenches by land. So Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy. The British Royal Navy. Yep, that's right. So immediately, scientific communication ends between the warring nations. Well, right. So, so nowadays, of course, we know that science is very international. At that time, was it international as well? And then that was just it was, off? and then that's right. And then the international aspects of science collapse immediately. Everybody goes into their own national camps. And they refuse to talk to each other. They refuse to send scientific journals back and forth. There's a movement in Germany to not cite any English scientific papers. There's a movement in England to, oh, how did they put it? To, to make, it, make it that the German language was never heard at a scientific conference again. Whoa. Wow. It was, uh, you know, actually, actually changing up technical terms so they wouldn't have to use the enemy's name. And these were, and it's, this was what it was like for everything in the nations. You know, the, the, what's the name of the um, British royal family? The Windsors? That's Hanover's. right. Hanover's. No, no, you're right. It's yeah. just the Windsors. Right. Um, but they are the house of Hanover. Um, uh-huh. And their, their last name until 1917 was Saxe-Coburg because they were Germans. Ah. The house of Hanover was British, British or, uh, German kings that were brought over to England in the 18th century. But then they had to change their name because you can't have the King of England sounding like a German. So, in, uh, so up till that point, it was like, yeah, our King or our King and Queen, whatever, have this German name, but it's okay. Yeah, no biggie, right? But then all of a sudden, we're like, well, now that we're fighting the Germans, we got to change that. So scientists follow along in all of that same sort of political maneuvering. Yeah, right? that's interesting. When at first, what I thought you were saying was that and something I could imagine, which is that literally communication is cut off. You know, we can't allow you to be sending scientific telegraphs to the other countries. But what you're saying is actually way beyond that, even the scientists themselves participated in the, what would you call it? Yeah, in this vicious vicious nationalism, nationalism, right, of my subtitle. But I should say it's both. So even someone like Einstein, who was a pacifist and socialist, and he thought the war was terrible and foolish, um, he still couldn't get letters to somebody in France because the trenches were there and they were blockaded. He couldn't get his ideas out. He couldn't get other ideas. He certainly couldn't send an expedition to another uh, country to, do, to, to observe an eclipse. He's really stuck. He's also starving to death because the blockade is cutting off food in Germany. Wow. He's literally starving to death. He is literally starving to death. There's a six-month period where he loses 50 pounds. Because he can't get f- they can't get food. Yeah, so the, the malnutrition he gets because of the lack of food gives rise to some kind of stomach problem. It's still not clear exactly what it, what it is. Um, but he's intense stomach pains. He's jaundiced. He's bedridden for a couple of years, essentially. And the, the prescription for, that his doctor gives him is like, well, eat lots of high-fat foods. And he's like, dude, I'm starving. (laughs) (laughs) There's no high fat foods to be had. So he has to have, like, say, friends in Switzerland um, send him food 
so wow. he can survive. So one, one thing this tells us also is in, well, in Germany, in Berlin was, it's funny, when we talk about people starving in a war, my impression is like a, a lot of people, but sort of like the poor people. Oh, as, as is always the case in human history, the poor have it worse than the rich, right? So surely, so Einstein as a professor and member of the Prussian Academy did better than most. I think there's there's no question about that. And the fact that he had friends and relatives in other countries to send him food. Um, but it's the kind of situation where people are butchering horses in the streets and, you know, gathering leaves off trees to make soup out of. Um, it's uh, It gets really bad in right. Germany during right. the war. And so what I was thinking also was that this indicates that another indication that Einstein is not, certainly not famous, not right. elite. Exactly. Nobody cares that Einstein is starving. <laughs> Nobody cares that Einstein is starving. That's a good chapter heading. <laughs> That's about right, because everybody else is starving too. So what's this This one twerp physicist? Nobody's going to make any special effort for him, right? So he has a lot of problems as the war develops. Um, he's starving. He can't get his theory tested. And as I mentioned, he's a pacifist, and that's not a popular thing to be in Imperial Germany in, during the war. Right? So he's under a great deal of political pressure to conform and to support the war, and he refuses. So is he out talking against the war? Yeah, he, um, not very well. I should say he's not very good at political maneuvering. But he belongs to a peace society, and he tries to use what contacts he has to, to move things towards peace and into the direction he wants. Like I said, he's really not very good at it. He gets better at it in life, but he has a series of sort of failed political attempts to, to bring the war to a close. That's kind of amazing. So he, to think about that, you know, that he went out in the middle of World War I. He happens to actually be on the side of what many in the world considered the aggressors, I guess, right. although maybe they mm -hmm. didn't. But he goes out and he joins protests, right? He signs... Yeah, signs manifestos. Manifestos, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And says, this is bad, end the war. And the war, I don't know, the closest analogy I can think of is growing up during the Vietnam era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good analogy. If mm -hmm. a famous professor spoke out against the war, that was a very controversial Thing. Yep, I mean, Martin Luther very, King, mm -hmm. actually, yeah. what turned out to be late in his life, he spoke out against Vietnam and was really got in trouble for that. Yeah. During wartime, it's very hard to have a, a differing political opinion. And, you know, the police are watching him. Um, later in the war, he actually has his movements curtailed. That is, he's not allowed to travel because he's a politically suspicious person. Ooh. But before that, that is before he gets he gets shut down completely. The one place he can travel to regularly is the, the Netherlands because they're neutral there. Ah, interesting. It turns out that the only people he really has to talk to are his friends in the Netherlands. Because back in Berlin, even his best buddy Max Planck is so pro-war that like Einstein can't take it. Einstein's other best friend is Fritz Haber who's the guy who invents chemical weapons. So poor Albert is like, who can I talk to? And, and the answer is his, his pacifist buddies in the Netherlands. 
the first people who learn general relativity are not really the people in Berlin, where he's a professor. They're the people in Leiden, which is this little town in Holland, because those are the people he's happy to hang out with. Yeah, yeah his but imagine that. Imagine that your mentor, the guy who's actually responsible for you getting your job, and even what fame you, what, what little fame you have, he, your this Blanc uh, mentor published his Einstein's papers, which is yep. mm-hmm. not something everybody can can get happen, and so. He's and Plunk is very pro, pro the war, pro war, yep, and pro king. Yep. So, if there's no world war, ah, right? Einstein is well fed. Einstein is well fed, and let's say there's no war, so Freundlich is able to make the observation um, without trouble. And let's say that the observation goes perfectly, and he makes the measurement exactly right. He will find that the measurement does not match Einstein's prediction. So it will all have been a total waste. In fact, they'll find that the the deflection, the, the, the movement of the star, is about twice what Einstein predicted. So Freundlich would have come back to Berlin and be like, I'm really sorry, Albert. I was not able to confirm your theory. And Einstein will be like, ah, crud. So actually, the first thing that happens is a bad, is, is, is a bad thing. That's right. It is not a good thing for Einstein. And it, Einstein realizes a couple years later, either around ni- in 1915, Einstein realized that he had a, made a mistake in that calculation back in 1912. So we're going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. And we're going to put this is a to be continued situation. Right. And we're ending with World War One doesn't happen. <laughs> but instead, let's say Freundlich does this, takes photographs of an eclipse and publishes it. And it immediately shows Einstein is wrong. Yeah, exactly. so they probably wouldn't even publish it. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, it would totally not be worth. So the whole thing falls apart. Einstein is now nobody. He's a uh, uh, he's nothing but a schlepper, as my dad would say. He's still this weirdo professor in Berlin, who has no particular authority other than what his buddy Max Planck can get for him. So next week we're going to pick up right here where we're leaving off now, which is Einstein is fat and happy, <laughs> but totally screwed. Academically. Yeah, that's he's, right. he's nobody. And will he ever become somebody <laughs> in this world of peace? Find out next week when we return to Einstein's War. <laughs> Your book, which is coming out now, which is, by the way, available for pre-order now. It is. Or, or even by the time this airs, it might be. I think that's right. I have, I have heard tales of people seeing it physically so it yeah. may yeah it may exist einstein's war by matthew stanley check it out if you get time read ahead try to catch up with us because we're moving fast next week we can pick up the story from here see you then what the <laughs> oh no do we do the usual sign off do we sign yeah i think we do everyone expects all right. us okay all, all right. right on the same page yeah. what, what the, the... Eh, 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 eh.